BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show and happy Monday. House oversight investigators are expected to hear testimony this week from Hunter Biden's former business partner. It's getting very interesting in the Hunter slash Joe Biden corruption investigation. Now, this guy who's going to speak, his name is Devin Archer, and he is the ex-best friend of Hunter Biden and was also on that same Ukrainian company, Burisma's board with Hunter Biden. And he has been granted immunity, apparently, to speak in front of Congress and spill all the tea about Hunter Biden. And he's ready to do it. He said he's gotten death threats. He was supposed to testify today. It's been postponed by a couple of days. Uh, But he, we are now told via The New York Post, is going to detail how, among other things, Hunter Biden repeatedly, repeatedly put his father, then the sitting vice president, Joe Biden, on the phone with his many foreign business associates. That directly contradicts what Joe Biden has told us all repeatedly about having never even discussed his son's business with Hunter. Um, He's long denied it. I've never spoken to my son about We're going to walk you through all the latest developments separately. White House officials now apparently trying to keep Biden away from not terrorists, uh, not criminals, but stairs, stairs, which have the likeliest, uh, the biggest chance of leading to his demise in the view of of those who surround him, maybe as a matter of, you know, his longevity, maybe just as a matter of his political career, but he's no longer using the main stairway to get onto Air Force One. He's got to go on the little like the mini stairs, the short stairs to get him up into the belly of the plane. Have you noticed he's been doing that? There's a reason. This is a majority of the U.S. national women's soccer team stands there like a bunch of potted plants saying nothing during our national anthem. They're a disgrace. I'm ashamed of them. Ashamed. Only one or two actually bothered to even try singing. The rest looked like they were embarrassed to be Americans. We'll get to all of it. Here with us today, Emily Jashinsky, culture editor at The Federalist and host of The Federalist Radio Hour, and Eliana Johnson, editor-in-chief of The Washington Free Beacon and co-host of the podcast, Ink Stained Wretches. Welcome back, EJs. Great to see you. Um, I can't wait to get to that soccer story. My blood was boiling over the weekend, boiling as I watch these ingrates parade around like they're representing us. Well, you're not. I don't know who you're representing. Some woke Upper West Side 
far left Californians, maybe, but not us. Screw you, Megan Rapino. You didn't even make the starting team. There you off. You're off on the sidelines. I'd have find you kneeling via some somebody else's report. I'm sure she was. But now her 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 anti-Americanism has spread like poison ivy to the rest of the team players. No one wants to salute America. OK, stand by on that. Let's start with Hunter Biden, because that's actually hard news. It's getting uncomfortable for him and more importantly for Joe Biden, ladies. Um, this guy, Devin Archer, uh, you know, again, going to give testimony this week. I, I outline what he's expected to say. Um, and on top of that, we've gotten now our hands on the 1023, the form. I have it here that uh, this confidential source provided uh, to us, suggesting that a bribe had been paid to Joe and Hunter Biden. I mean, Joe being the operative recipient in order for his action on Ukraine when he was the sitting vice president. Five million to him, allegedly five million to Hunter. Um, And it goes through in great detail why this confidential human source, who we apparently trusted in our government, uh, outlined why it was done, that it was done by the Burisma executives, that they were really trying to get the government, uh, the, the investigation into Burisma done and over with and get rid of the prosecutor. And that's exactly what Joe Biden wound up doing, getting rid of that prosecutor. So there's a lot here to digest. But my overall point is this House Oversight Committee is zeroing in not just on Hunter, but on Joe. And the media has done a total and complete blackout of it. Eliana, what do you make of it all? Wish I could tell you I was surprised about the blackout. And what's interesting about this form is it is the testimony of one witness. And we hear in the press It's uncorroborated, unverified, and so on. Well, you know, if only we had some reporters who might be able to chase down leads and corroborate tips, uh, that would be quite useful when it came to uh, testimony like this. But that's not uh, what we see in the mainstream media. More importantly, I think what you're seeing with Hunter Biden and Joe Biden is this slow boil where there is a drip, drip, drip um, around Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, it's like a frog um, boiling in a pot, um, where I do think that this is having an impact on the American people um, who are starting to understand, they may not be following this stuff closely, but are certainly starting to understand that um, these guys were up to no good. And we'll see if Devin Archer shows up to this testimony. He's uh, he's canceled three times, and this is supposed to be behind closed doors. Um, but what he says could be very interesting and important. On the other hand, you know, he was a scumbag in business with Hunter Biden. He's not uh, the most unimpeachable witness. Um, so, so we'll see what happens. But more broadly, um, I do think this is taking a toll on um on Joe Biden and the image he has tried since he entered politics many, many, many moons ago to put forward that his word and his character were unimpeachable. You know, the timeline is coming together, Emily, on this alleged bribe. And I should say and underscore right at the front that this confidential form that the FBI had and didn't want to turn over to Congress, but ultimately he had to. Chris Ray had to. They were threatening him with contempt. This is just about six weeks ago. Um, we don't know whether this form is true. We don't know whether what the confidential human source was reporting to us is true. Um, what we are all asking for is an investigation. We would like to find out if it is true, because if it's true, Joe Biden committed a crime and belongs in jail. Literally, those are the stakes. If what's in that form is true, Joe Biden is a criminal. So 
we can't just say, oh, who cares? Whatever. You know, it doesn't amount to anything, even even if true. If true, he's a criminal. Uh, He took a bribe as the sitting vice president of the United States and then sold out our country by pulling off this prosecutor from this Ukrainian corrupt oil company, gas company, Burisma, in exchange for the lining of his own pockets and those of his son. That's what's being alleged in the 1023. And Devin Archer, who was Hunter's business partner at the time, gives additional information that dovetails very nicely with the allegations in that form. More and more things are building toward Hunter and Joe were on some sort of a corruption scheme while Joe was vice president. We don't know whether it's true. But Emily, the fact that this isn't the lead story in every newspaper in America right now with the appropriate cautions is actually downright disturbing to me as a as a member of the press. I had the exact same reaction as I was reading the New York Post story today. I was like, my goodness, this is so explosive. It's well sourced. It's detailed that in another era, this absolutely should have been and would have been. I think, you know, our media has never been perfect, but this would have been the headline on the front pages. It would have been the headline, the lead story on news channels, but it's basically just crickets. Now, some of that is because there is, as Eliana mentions, a drip, drip, drip. But the 1023 and the Devin Archer story in the New York Post today are absolutely related. And they're all, they continue to be related to the whistleblowers, the IRS whistleblowers that we just heard from last week. Basically, you have the government impeding investigations, hiding things like the 1023 form or preventing those from getting out. All the while, we also see very clearly more and more evidence that Joe Biden, who said, he outright said he did not have any knowledge of Hunter's dealings with foreign clients. He, he made that a point in his 2020 campaign. And I didn't know anything about this. Uh, as the, the Devin Archer testimony suggests, not only did Joe Biden know about it, but some of those meetings we heard about from the laptop, like at Cafe Milano, a very swanky restaurant here in D.C., where people, uh, elites like to have you know, fancy dinners and do business over their dinners, those fancy business dinners, uh, Cafe Milano, we know that Joe Biden and Ukrainian clients of Hunter Biden's were there. We've seen pictures of them golfing together. So while we have all of this, like the pieces are there, what we don't have is the, the clear sort of explicit thing from anybody other than Tony Bobulinski, who the media just has already decided has no credibility, someone coming out and saying, yes, Joe Biden was involved in the business. And by Joe Biden taking this call and talking to Hunter Biden's clients, by the way, that's him being involved in the business because what they're they're selling is influence peddling. And we know that this was while he was vice president. If Devin Archer is to be trusted, you have the vice president of the United States taking calls from his son who's sitting uh, at these these restaurants, these meetings with his Ukrainian clients. Well, he's the Obama administration's point man on Ukraine. You don't need to sound like a conspiracy theorist, Charlie Kelly at his like chalkboard connecting the dots crazily to understand uh, any of the story. It's just that Joe Biden was helping Hunter Biden sell influence. Here's the timeline. Um, So first, just for those who are living their lives and uh, I hopefully not reading the 1023 over the week. Like <laughs> people have things to do. Um but here's a, here's a little bit of what was in this form which we were never supposed to see and now it's been released for all of us to look at with a few minor redactions. Um okay, again, this is a bombshell FBI informant file describing a 10 million dollar bribery allegation against then Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter. The man's now president of the United States, for those of you playing at home. Um, A Ukrainian oligarch claiming he was coerced into making the payoff. 
Um, these oligarchs over in Ukraine, basically, that's how they get rich. They pay these um, they run these big companies and they pay off government officials to leave them alone. This guy, his name is Mikola Zlochevsky. Zlochevsky. He owns Burisma, the infamous company that was paying Hunter something like 85 grand a month to sit on its board, even though he had no expertise in gas or oil. It was basically just his connection to his old man. And now we find out why it was so important, why that was so valuable. It wasn't a just in case, according to this form, if it's true, they actually needed it and they used it, the connection. So Mikola Zlochevsky tells the, uh, according to the, uh, to the um, informant, um, he had a meeting with the, with the informant in 2016 at a coffee shop in Vienna, Austria. And he told that informant it cost five million bucks to pay one Biden five million to the other. Uh, he, Zlochevsky made the comment that although Hunter Biden was stupid and that Zlochevsky's dog was smarter, Zlochevsky needed to keep Hunter Biden on Burisma's board so everything will be OK. That's a quote. The source asked whether Hunter or Joe told Zlochevsky that he should retain the younger Biden on the board. Like whose idea was it? Our source is asking. And Zlochevsky allegedly replied, they both did. So that's Zlochevsky. The, the president, the owner of Burisma saying Joe Biden himself told him, put my son on your board. This goes back to the conversation I had a week and a half ago with Miranda Devine, who for the first time helped me see this is not Hunter Biden lining his own pockets and maybe getting 10 percent for the big guy. This was a Joe Biden operation. The more you listen to Miranda and read her reporting and all of her sources, this is Joe Biden pulling the strings. Joe Biden was trying to line his pockets, according to these allegations. And Hunter was going along for the ride. He was using Hunter, her reporting shows. Um, again, un unconfirmed at this point because nobody else will investigate. But we're on our way, thanks to House Oversight. They both did, he said. The federal informant, who is described as a Ukrainian-American, who's been a trusted, highly credible FBI source for over a decade, um, described Four conversations with Zlochevsky, beginning in Kiev in late 2015 or early 16, continuing through a 2019 phone call, all while Joe Biden was vice president, all during the relevant time frame. Uh, he said each of his conversations with Zlochevsky, our informant with the president of Burisma, occurred in the presence of another man named Ostapenko. Ostapenko. That guy Ostapenko introduced the informant to Zlochevsky. That's how he met through them. Or he, he introduced them and he works in some office for Zelen for now, President Zelensky. Zlochevsky, the Burisma owner, allegedly claimed that he has an insurance policy on all of this. He wasn't dumb. He kept recordings of the conversations with the Bidens, 17 of them, in fact, two of which he claims to the informant involved Joe Biden, as well as many text messages and two documents. And he thinks he says these are financial records of payments. According to Zlochevsky, again, the Burisma owner, the recordings and other evidence showed that uh, he was coerced into paying the Bidens to ensure that this prosecutor over in Ukraine was fired. That's what Burisma wanted. Burisma was allegedly corrupt. This prosecutor was investigating Burisma. They wanted the guy fired. And there's no question that Joe Biden got him fired. That is an admitted fact in the record. Joe Biden got him fired. Joe Biden says he got him fired because he was corrupt. The prosecutor. And that not only we, the United States, but European allies also wanted the guy gone as an effort to clean up corruption in Ukraine. So they're all doing this listening audience. I'm pointing both ways <laughs> with my fingers. Um, but in any event, we know that Joe Biden did get him fired. Here's Joe Biden bragging about the fact that he got him fired at an appearance before the Council on Foreign Relations, March 2018, sought to. 
He said, I'm telling you, you're not getting a billion dollars. I said, you're not getting a billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. So we know Joe Biden got the guy fired. But what this 1023 alleges is that that was because Joe Biden got paid five million and his son Hunter got paid five million. And there's a confidential source we've trusted for a decade saying I heard that directly from the guy who made the payments, who is the head of Burisma, the company that was paying Hunter Biden 85 grand a month. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty it's not like so far fetched. None of these people has a connection to the Bidens. How could they possibly have even known the Bidens? Enter Devin Archer, ladies. Devin Archer, who was on that very same board with Hunter Biden who is Hunter Biden's best friend, who's going to testify, we believe, Eliana, as you point out, uncertain, but we believe he's going to take uh, the stand in front of House Oversight and testify to the following timeline. 2015, Joe Biden's the sitting vice president. After a board meeting of Burisma, Archer and Hunter traveled to the Four Seasons Resort in Dubai to have a drink. While they were sitting outside of the bar, a senior Burisma executive phoned to ask where they were because Burisma's owner, Zlochevsky, needed to speak to Hunter urgently. Soon afterward, the two Ukrainians joined Hunter and Archer at the Four Seasons Bar, and one of them asked Hunter, can you ring your dad? Hunter then called his father, put him on speaker, placed the phone on the table, and introduced the Ukrainians there to Joe Biden by name. He also said words to the effect that the Burisma bigwigs, quote, need our support. That's Hunter to the dad. Vice President Biden, sitting vice president, greeted the Ukrainians, but spoke only in vague pleasantries during the short call. All this from Devin Archer. Congressional investigators, we believe, will probe the reasons for Zlochevsky, the owner of Burisma, requesting the urgent phone call with Joe Biden. Three days after that call, Then Vice President Joe Biden was due to fly to Ukraine, to Kiev, to address the Ukrainian parliament. That was on December 9th, 2015, about corruption in Ukraine. By then, that prosecutor was already investigating Burisma. So this is Burisma, according to these allegations, realizing the heat's being turned up on it and that Joe Biden's been placed as the point man in in charge of Ukrainian corruption by Barack Obama. And this guy, the head of Burisma, manages to get a message to the sitting vice president through his son, that they need his help. Can you ring your dad? With, we, and Hunter says they need our support to his sitting vice president father. Three days after the speaker phone call, the vice president goes to Kiev to speak about parliament. And in an email to Hunter and Archer on November 2nd, 2015, one month before that speaker phone call, we know that one of the men at the meeting, a Ukrainian, explicitly demanded that they use their influence to close down the criminal investigation against Burisma. So it's clear on record that they had been asking this of Hunter Biden. This is what we're allegedly going to hear. Um, and then came that comment that then came Joe Biden going over to Ukraine, Ukraine and getting Viktor Shokin fired. All of this is highly disturbing. And I'm going to say, look, it's highly incriminating. It smells to high heaven. I mean, it. Eliana, is there a scandal if the media doesn't say that there's a scandal? Does Watergate happen? Does Nixon get impeached if almost if um, if the media doesn't cover it, if there's no Woodward and Bernstein, if if there's absolutely no media interest or a complete media blackout? The only way 
anything happens is with the support of the American public. And there's only one way of getting to the American public, and that is through the media in all of its various forms. Look, I think you're partly right. The the media in the upcoming election, 2024, um, the lack of coverage does matter. It's probably worth a couple of points. On the other hand, this information is getting out there, um, whether it's because of people like you or the Wall Street Journal editorial page or publications like The Federalist and The Beacon. There isn't a total blackout in media um, on this. And it is the information is trickling out um, and it is damaging uh, Joe Biden, his refusal to acknowledge his seventh granddaughter, um, his attempts to portray himself as a family man with all this grossness around him, whether it was small ball. Yes, the New York Times is willing to do that. But that is small ball compared to allegedly took a damn bribe while a sitting vice president. What you are talking about would be corruption on the level that the vice presidency may have never seen uh, if that if that is proved, uh, you know, if all of this bears out. And let me just say you what you referenced in the 1023 form where the guy says that Hunter Biden is dumber than his dog. I mean, sounds accurate. You know, there are things in it that do ring true. Um And they certainly merit follow-up and additional scrutiny. And Devin Archer is someone who knows Hunter incredibly well. And I think his testifying, his testimony could be really damning. He knows the ins and outs of the business. He um, he certainly could provide compelling first-person testimony with names and dates. He was on all of these emails. Uh, His testimony could be incredibly important. Yes, the lack of media coverage, the lack of media interest, the lack of media um, ambition, you know, they know they're not going to win Pulitzer Prizes um, for bringing down Joe Biden. Miranda Devine uh, should get one. They did with, with Trump. Um, they know that. So the um, that matters. At the same time, um, I do think that despite their best attempts, the information is getting out and that's it also is going to matter. Um, of course, not to the same level of this was front page in the New York Times every day, but it's getting out and it, it is hurting. It is hurting Joe Biden. You know, I guess, Emily, when the New York Times starts taking a deep dive, we'll know that they are watching the polls and they're fearful that he can't beat the likely GOP nominee who at this point is Trump could could be one of the others. But at this point, you have to say it's Trump. Um, but the, the media won't turn on him until they are convinced Joe Biden can't beat whoever's coming up on the GOP side. Only when they're convinced he's a liability will they get rid of him. The latest polls out today, we'll get to him, show um, (laughs) Biden. It's tight. You know, depending on the poll by the week, it's like he's within a couple points of Trump. He's within a couple points of DeSantis up or down. But Kamala Harris gets absolutely crushed, including by Donald Trump. The electorate will never elect her ever. And And Joe Biden is frailer and frailer by the day. And I really do believe once the media makes the calculation that he can't do this, he can't make the sprint or the marathon. Right. Um, and get get the Dems across the finish line in November 2024. They're going to have to turf him because they know she'll lose. And I think that's why you see people like Gavin Newsom waiting in the wings and sort of floating their name out there because they feel as though there is a possibility. And I, I actually think to your point about Woodward and Bernstein, something that really is is totally true when you look back at how that situation was handled. I don't think you would have had period, a President Joe Biden. I do not think this man would have been elected president if the press applied the same standards 
of ethics to this generation of politicians that they did to other generations of politicians. And they've always leaned a little bit left, but we had plenty of information actually to your point about how all of this narrative is coming together. We knew that Joe Biden was the front man for the Obama administration in Ukraine. And we knew that his son was an unregistered foreign agent as of the time of the election in 2020. I actually don't know if Joe Biden wins the Democratic primary in 2020 in a different era because all of this stuff, I mean, Tony Bobulinski has been on the record since 2020 and he's still filling out some of the stuff we're supposed to learn from Devin Archer, who himself is under investigation and has plenty of reason to talk now. So I actually think that we had so many details of obvious Biden family soft corruption that is very serious. We call it soft corruption, but it's it's actually very serious and it gets to this man selling himself as America's principled, friendly grandfather um, in the same way that the story about the seventh grandchild does. Like this is a man who uses his character as a, a huge part of his campaign. Um, and, and to Miranda's point is actually using his son to rake in millions and millions of dollars, basically using his son as a shell company um, to to peddle influence and uh, as unregistered foreign agents, by the way, um, which mm -hmm. is a huge part of all of this, too, because Paul Manafort was charged with that uh, on the Trump side. And people on the left are not getting treated as seriously as people on the right who have violated FARA have. Um, and so, let alone the president of the United States being an unregistered or the vice president of the United States being an unregistered foreign agent. And the really sad part of all of this is the president of the United States is now dealing with Ukraine on another scale. And if he is compromised because because he has financial relationships in Ukraine that are changing the way he approaches policy. All of this is not even to talk about China. The fact that Hunter Biden, we knew in 2020 when Joe Biden was running, Hunter Biden took Air Force Two to Beijing with his father and conducted business there. We have known all of this. And these are the two fronts in Joe Biden's foreign policy right now. And so oh the God. fact that he is the president of the United States because the press didn't hit him hard on all of this stuff, uh, I think speaks volumes about the eco political ecosystem right now. It's it's deeply alarming. I mean, I look at your first year. It's like, I, I have no idea whether any of this is true. There's some forum may or may not be confirmed. I have no like when you line it up and you look at this, the information coming out of Bobulinski, coming from the 1023, coming from Devin Archer, some what we know for a fact from Joe Biden's own words on camera, it, it smells. It smells to high heaven. It's more than justifying for a special counsel, which we can't get to, to look into this specifically to find out what is the truth. Even if he weren't president, it would be worth doing. If a former recent vice president sat and took bribes on behalf of the well, well, supposedly arguing on our behalf, the United States of America, we'd need to know. But he is the sitting president in charge of policy, as you point out, not just Ukraine, but China is a whole other ball of wax with corruption allegations, too, involving the Bidens. And he's running for re-election. He's running for re-election. So we need to know. I want to give you the poll that I was just referencing. It's the latest Harvard-Harris poll released on Friday. And it shows that uh, in a head-to-head -head matchup between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, Trump wins 45 to 40. Uh, and then it shows in a head-to-head -head matchup, Trump versus Kamala Harris, Trump easily wins 47 to 38. Though, as we've seen in earlier polls, 70 percent of voters would like another option between um, Trump and Biden. They, they do not want those two to be the nominees, even though Trump's overwhelmingly winning on the GOP side and Biden's overwhelmingly winning on the Dem side. We're rushing toward renominating both of these guys 
but 70 percent of the voters would really like another option. Um, 68 percent of Americans said they felt President Biden now 80 is showing us he is too old to be president. And that's another problem for Joe Biden. The, the there's a piece out today. Is it NBC? Yeah, NBC News talking about how, as I mentioned in the um, opening, he's got to use the short stairway, you know, the short bus. He's on the short stairway to get on Air Force One. He can't can't make it up the normal stairway. A robust young man or normal person of any age could go, could use. So now he's got to go through the much shorter entry. He um, is described by those who are his allies in this piece as, quote, quite frail, um, does not have the stamina levels, they say, of Obama or a younger president. He, of course, oh, needs extra think? large font on the teleprompter and note cards to remind him of the points that he is supposed to make in meetings. We've seen his cheat sheets for reporters. There are allegations he's actually gotten the questions from the reporters like the L.A. Times. Eliana, I mean, it's like I mean, he's he's special. He's a special president of the United States. I mean, look, this goes to what we were talking about a little bit before. The media may not be covering it, but the American people can see it and they don't want either one of these guys. The only people who want a Trump and Biden rematch are the press who are very much pushing for Biden to be the Democratic nominee and Trump to be the Republican nominee. Uh, that is the narrative that we are getting. But um, the Biden coverage is amusing in the sense that these news reports, quote unquote, are telling us what we can see with our own eyes. Um, mm -hmm. We've been seeing AP photographs of um, the guy's note cards who name his own staffers and tell him where they're sitting in relation to him um, for the past year. And we can see his little shuffling steps on and off stage, uh, again, with our own eyes, we can see that he's frail. We can see that he's feeble. Um, and it is only the people, um, his aides quoted in stories who tell us that he's so energetic, they can't keep up with him. Um, so yes, I, I did read with amusement in the press story that he's using the 14 step stairway to get onto Air Force One as opposed to the 26 um, step stairway because that leaves 12 fewer steps for him potentially to fall on and embarrass himself. Um, it is sad. And I do think that um, this desire among so many of our politicians, it is not just Joe Biden, but he's an extreme example to stay in public life long after their expiration date. We have Dianne mm. Feinstein in the Senate is like a symptom of something um, bad, bad. I mean, he talks about his grandchildren all the time. Go spend some time with them. Yes. You know, I have to say, like, Chuck Grassley's older than all of them and seems to yeah. be holding it together just fine. Um, and then there's Alan Dershowitz, who I think is 85, who puts us all to shame. So it's not that it's impossible to be even in your mid to late 80s and be very with it. I mean, it, it's possible. It's just not happening in the case of Joe Biden or Dianne Feinstein. It's just not. So the, they're kind of undermining it for everybody else. Right. It's like if you're making the case to the most American people that it's your age. That's the problem. Whereas it's you. Maybe you didn't exercise. Maybe you didn't make good life choices. I don't know why you wound up this way versus Alan Dershowitz. It's really, you know, it shouldn't be my problem, but it is that's, because you're president of the United good, States. Good campaign for um, one of the old people who's keeping it together to run against well, them. I like that. I mean, that is the, the thing like Donald 
Trump and uh, Joe Biden are not that different age wise. And yet it's night and day, like whatever you think about either of them politically, Donald Trump is obviously somebody of an advanced age who doesn't have the medical complications of of Biden's advanced age. And that's one thing that the media can cover Biden as much as they want. They can have uh, fun pictures of him, whatever. They can't hide it. I mean, it, they, they really cannot hide his age. And the poll you cited, Megan, um, one thing that stands out to me, where you have 70% of the country that would prefer an option um, other than Trump and other than Biden, they don't want that matchup. Both of those men are, as of right now, refusing to debate. Joe Biden doesn't want to take the debate stage. Donald Trump doesn't want to take the debate stage. Um, Joe Biden doesn't want there to even be a Democratic Party debate about who the nominee would be, despite the fact that you do have a lot of the country and a lot of Democrats exhausted with his presidency and and Donald Trump himself. I mean, one thing I think about is uh, in 2015 and 2016, you basically had about 70 percent of Republican voters going for somebody other than Trump. Like that number was pretty constant. Most voters in the Republican primary voted against Donald Trump. And it was something like a 60, 40, 70, 30 ratio. Now it's the exact opposite. You have about that 30% split among all the different candidates and about 70% for Trump. Um, but a lot of that is people feeling like they're it's inevitable and that they're going to have to. Uh, he's, he's the only person at this point that can beat Joe Biden. Um, and it's an inevitability when you have 30% of people that are absolutely fully committed to Donald Trump. So the mm-hmm. fact that nobody uh, of these uh, men of advanced age, who frankly, statistically might not make it through a full presidency, even though they're on different ends of the health spectrum, I would say, for men of their age, and neither is planning to debate an opponent. I I mean, that is also, to Eliana's point about what this says about our politics, that's really bad and and I think really unfortunate uh, as well. Mm. You know, I mean, Trump is not debating because he doesn't think he has to at this early stage against these competitors. Joe Biden's not debating, maybe because he thinks he doesn't have to, but he can't. I mean, I think we all know he can't, right? Like, I would it would be hard to watch. It would really be like when you're at the circus and the, they're up on the high wire and there's no net and you're like, oh, God, I don't want to see anything happen. You know, not for my entertainment, not for any purpose whatsoever. I just say what you will about RFK Jr. He is deft uh, intellectually and he can stick and move pretty well. Uh, and it would be rather ugly, I think. So if I were advising Joe Biden, I'd say the same thing. Sit your ass at home. You go on the short stairs. You hold on to the railings, you wear your grandpa shoes, and then you get back into that basement, sir. You sit down there and let us indict Trump to kingdom come <laughs> and you just take care of your well-being. See your doctor. See your doctor again. Apparently the doctor's you all need one over of those, him. Um, those seats on the railing just take him up and down the stairs of Air Force One, you know, like a motorized. That's a good Those things are on. amazing. They're so fun. Yeah, yeah, but that would be the end of his presidency for sure. There he is going up the super short stairs. Very carefully. Don't blow it. Almost there. Yes. <laughs> All right. Stand by. <laughs> ladies. We'll be right back because there's an update on uh, the Trump side, the lawfare against Donald Trump. And we'll bring it to you next. Emily and Eliana stay with us for the show. Grand Canyon University, a private Christian university in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona, believes in equal opportunity and that the American dream starts with purpose. GCU equips you to serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Change the world for good by putting others before yourself. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's online, on-campus, and hybrid learning environments 
are designed to help you achieve your unique academic, personal, and professional goals. With over 330 academic programs as of September, GCU meets you where you are and provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Let it flourish. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. So Trump is looking at, I guess, a bit of good news and a bit of bad news. Um, It looks like he's going to get indicted. Yes, we believe by Jack Smith in connection with January 6th. That news broke a week ago today. Um, But also now they're ramping up the news out of Georgia where this Fannie Willis, she's the one who impaneled a grand jury and that lunatic four person was running around to CNN giddy about the long list of charges and you won't be surprised who's on it. (laughs) Fannie Willis does not want to be outdone by Jack Smith or Alvin Bragg and is getting ready to charge him down in Georgia for election interference related charges. Um, And the I think it's it's good news. I know people like Mark Levin are disappointed. I saw him attacking the judge in the in the Mar-a-Lago's document case against Trump, where she set the trial date. Uh, this is a Trump appointed judge for is it? It's May, May of 2024. All right. So that's I always think of the months by numbers. That's five. And the election's in 11. All right. So it's six months before the election. But I'm telling you right now, there's no there's no way that that case is going off in May. It's not going off in May. It's going to get postponed. All she has to do is postpone a couple of things here, there, along the way to May. And, you know, here we are. We're in seven right now. So she's got a long time between seven and the following five to figure out ways to delay it, which I bet she will. I mean, I think Trump will figure out ways and she'll probably give it to him because scheduling matters are usually given. And um, all he needs to do is get it up to like August. You know, that's what? Just a couple of months later, that's three months later. And then in August, he's going to say, you can't have the damn trial of me now if he's the nominee. I'm on the ballot in early November. Talk about election interference. There's just no harm to the court or to justice if you postpone this by two and a half, three months. That's what's going to happen. That's my prediction. So I think May is actually a good date for Trump to have gotten in the Mar-a-Lago's document case. And um, I think the only case that has a realistic opportunity at this point of getting tried before the November election is Alvin Bragg's loser case in New York, which, yes, it'll probably be a jury that hates him, but it's bullshit charges. I mean, really patently bullshit charges could get thrown out on the papers. And on top of that, um, he's not looking at jail time. So do we really like eh. I, I think overall the lawfare against Trump is outrageous, but I I think he's doing okay. What do you make of my assessment, Emily? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. He's actually, if anything, it's good for him. He's gone up in the polls in the primary, and uh, that may not translate into a general election, but uh, actually, I think it would, because the more indictments he's hit with and the more lawfare against Donald Trump there is, the more he dominates the news cycle. So that takes oxygen away from Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, anybody else who's trying to challenge him. So since he's been hit with additional indictments, we've actually seen the gap between him and Ron DeSantis uh, widen 
And that coincides in some ways with DeSantis entering the race. Uh, but I actually don't think there's there's a coincidence there. I, I really think that he's just sucking up all the oxygen. And because he looks like the biggest target of the political class, the political establishment, that right now in this Republican primary is a gift. That is a political advantage to be the central threat that the political establishment is identifying and then targeting. And so I think in a general election, if he's, you know, if, if Joe Biden is able say this guy is facing, you know, four separate challenges. He's been indicted X number of times. Again, I think because the country is so polarized and that you have some people who say he's guilty, some people say he's absolutely not guilty and a middle that is just saying, what on earth is going on? Why are these my choices? I don't mm. think it dramatically changes the game. And if it does, I actually think it gives an advantage to Trump. Mm-hmm. Eliana, the, uh, the latest polls, my God. I mean, you've got to be dancing in the streets if you're Trump, if you're anybody else. I mean, people are like, Vivek, Vivek polled second in one poll out of, I think, Florida on Friday, which gets a B rating. So it's a decent poll, not like the best, not the worst. He's polling tied with Ron DeSantis for second. But let's not kid ourselves. They're, they're, they're second in a race where there's like 10 points between you and the first. And then there's this race where they're second or third. And they're 40 points behind the leader, 40. That same Harvard Harris poll has Donald Trump at 52. DeSantis is number two in this one at 12. Vivek is at 10, which, yes, is better for Vivek. I'm not trying to crap on Vivek. I'm just saying, who are we kidding? 52 versus 12 is stunning. And if you are a Trump lover, you're thrilled. If you are a supporter of any of these other guys or of the anybody but Trump fan club, you're crying in your soup. There are a couple of assumptions that I'm making right now. They may be right or wrong. But one is that um, one of the turning points in this race, and we'll see if it proves to be a turning point, but it's an important moment, is that first Republican debate on August 23rd third or fourth um, third. in Milwaukee on August 23rd. Um, that's a chance for the Republican primary voters to see these candidates if they all choose to show up. And I think they all do need to show up um, to appear alongside each other and showcase their talents and make their case to the voters. Um, this race hasn't really started um, in truth. And I think that um, I'm looking at is the official kickoff um, of this race. And we'll see what happens after that. But right now, of course, Trump is in a commanding position. None of the candidates have managed to eat into his lead. And I actually attribute um, Trump's commanding position in part to the fact that he's the incumbent, but also in part to the fact that none of the others have run particularly good campaigns. Um, Ron DeSantis is um, is floundering and needs a course correction right now. And he all along has only uh, has been uh, kind of sort of the only one who could um, who could steal the mantle from Trump. And I think the question for Trump with all of his um, legal troubles, uh, the strongest case against him is the document case. Um, where mm -hmm. he's in real legal peril. And either he'll be president and confront the possibility of pardoning himself if he is uh, convicted, or um, if another Republican is president, he will be in the interesting position of having to make nice with one of these other Republicans and look to them for a possible pardon. And I think 
if another Republican does snatch the nomination from his hands, um, that will put Trump in an interesting position of um, not being able to be the spoiler, which he has been in all of these other races since he um, was uh since in 2020 and after where he wasn't a party player he undermined republicans chances in the georgia senate races mm. um he's talked smack about all the other republican candidates but i don't think um given his legal troubles he wants to be in the position of um being in the bad graces of a potential Republican president or Republican Senate uh, majority or minority leader, uh, I think he's going to want to be in the party's good graces, given the troubles he may face um, should he not be president. That is a great point. That's a great point. Um, That just changed my thinking, because all along I've been thinking if Trump doesn't get the nomination, he'll just be a spoiler. I mean, his his fans are going to take their ball and go home. They're not just going to switch over to Ron DeSantis or anybody else. But the the legal cases against Trump throw that into question because not just for Trump, but even his supporters who love him. The last thing they're going to want to see at that point is another Democratic president, because then Trump's really screwed because Jack Smith's not going to drop these cases. His fans may be inclined to do that, but I think Trump will be motivated to lead them in a different direction this time. He at least has reason to be a team player where he didn't in um, in in past years. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, such a good point that the, that whole calculation has changed now for how Trump behaves if he doesn't get the nomination. And yet, is this an exercise in just fiction, Emily, as we look at not just those national polls like the Harvard Harris, but the latest Fox Business Network polls. Everybody thinks these are like right leaning polls because they come out of Fox. They're not. This is objective polling. And at Fox, I have to say, has the best in the business. Uh, they did polling of Iowa and South Carolina to see how it's going. Trump is up over his next closest competitor, DeSantis, in Iowa, where DeSantis has spent a lot of money by 30 points, 46 to 16, 30 points. Tim Scott is kind of nipping at DeSantis's heels in Iowa. Uh, he's got 11 percent to DeSantis's 16. Vivek's at six. Nikki Haley's at five. I mean, I, I, it's like it's not really worth mentioning other than the top two, to be perfectly honest, maybe three. So it goes Trump, DeSantis, Scott, 46, 16, 11. South Carolina, Trump is up by 34. 34 over Nikki Haley. She's in the number two slot there. Trump has 48. Nikki Haley is 14. DeSantis has dropped to third place, but only by one point behind Haley at 13. And Tim Scott, he's also hometown like Nikki Haley. He's at he's in fourth right now with 10 percent. But my God, (laughs) he's up 34 in South Carolina. He's up 30 in Iowa and he's up double digits, considerable double digits, I think over 20 in New Hampshire, too, Emily. So it's like. I don't. I don't see it. Like, what is the plan to get rid of him on the Republican side for any of the they're just are they just counting on Jack Smith? That's a good question. I mean, especially because when you look at it in, again, contrast with 2016, they don't have the numbers. Like even if they wanted to orchestrate a Buttigieg, Klobuchar, um, and then sort of what Cruz and Rubio had the opportunity to do back in 2016 type of maneuver where you coalesce and say this is about, you know, the Democratic Party retaining power, not so much about Pete and Amy and Joe. Uh, you couldn't even do that in this case because the numbers aren't there. There's no coalition that you can add up that 
will even come close to Trump's numbers, right? So if like you got Vivek and Tim Scott and Nikki Haley to all agree to chop out and back DeSantis, that doesn't even get you into Trump territory and South Carolina. It doesn't. You're right. It does, yeah. It's doing Carolina, the math, looking at the numbers. You're 100 percent right. It doesn't get you there. You don't even have the option. And South Carolina is such an an interesting barometer because this is where you have two well-liked home turf politicians and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. And neither of them is even like around uh, maybe maybe Tim Scott's around 10 percent, 11 or something in South Carolina. But either way, he's he's at 10. Haley's at 14 and Trump's at 48. So there you have people with good faith built up over the course of years of political careers in a state, a a fairly normal red state. And even there, Donald Trump up by 34 points. Um, I I don't think that's just about South Carolina. I think that's a testament to the Republican base that even where people have good feelings about other candidates, there's just something about Donald Trump that people are sticking with. So the roadmap for anyone else is hard to see. Then again, we are a month away from debates. And uh, I think that's probably why Donald Trump says, hey, I'm not going to debate. I don't want to give anyone else the opportunity uh, to flip the narrative. I don't want to have a, a an opening for a big mistake. But once we get to debates um, and once we get to the post-Labor Day period, you can start to see some differences happening with money. Nobody knows what's going to happen, but the likelihood of something changing this race is low, remains low as of right now, for sure. I feel like Trump, he's not worried about getting hit at the debate. He's had that happen many times. He knows how to deal with it. I think it's he doesn't want to allow them to bathe in his reflective light. You know, he's like, if I show up, the ratings will be double what they'd be yeah. without me. And uh, why would I help you? Why would I help shine the spotlight on any of you? Uh, I'll get enough spotlight on my own. But I, I he'll be at some debates, but I, I do not think he's going to be at that first one. We'll see. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. Stand by, EJs. We'll be right back. And don't forget, folks, you can find The Megyn Kelly Show live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east. And the full video showing clips by subscribing to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash Megyn Kelly. If you prefer an audio podcast, go over and follow, download the show on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast for free. The great thing about doing that is you'll go over, you'll find our full archives. We now have more than 590 shows. My God, we've been working hard, um, but we love doing it. So it's an effort by all of us and it's well worth it. Okay, we'll be right back. Grand Canyon University, a private Christian university in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona, believes in equal opportunity and that the American dream starts with purpose. GCU equips you to serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Change the world for good by putting others before yourself. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's online, on campus, and hybrid learning environments are designed to help you achieve your unique academic, personal, and professional goals. With over 330 academic programs as of September, GCU meets you where you are and provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Let it flourish. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. So, ladies, I'm glad to see that you are indoors right now, because according to The New York Times, we need to stay inside. Don't go out in this treacherous summer. They had a piece posted on the 20th entitled, Is it safe to go outside? How to navigate this 
cruel summer. Now they're very, very concerned about heat, about flooding, about wildfire smoke. They have made for treacherous conditions. Use this guide to determine when it is safe to head out and when you should stay home. Now, I will go ahead and say, even though when I was in Connecticut before I came down here to Jersey, we we had a couple of those days where the Canadian wildfire smog was all over. You could smell the smoke. It was disgusting. I changed absolutely nothing about the way I behaved. Um, Notwithstanding the fact that I understand it's unpleasant, that issue in particular, um, I like the um, level of hysterics in here. It's almost like a whole newsroom full of Taylor Lorenz's, like the absolute panic about any sort of environmental danger. Uh, They want you, among other things, before you go outside to check the heat index, put your local air temperature and humidity level into this calculator with a helpful link from the weather service to get a localized heat index or download an app. This is how they want you to begin your mornings. Okay, you gotta, you gotta do calculations, ladies, into the heat index so you can make sure whether you can live. If the heat index is 103 degrees or above, avoid vigorous activity outdoors, limit your exposure to the heat, and so on. Excessive rainfall. The best way to navigate it is to prepare early. The weather service sends out different categories of flood alerts, so you need to keep your weather service alerts on and monitor your phone (laughs) all day because the danger could strike at any time. Now the air quality, you must monitor the air quality index. There's the heat index. That's your one app. Then you got to switch over to the other app and check out your heat, (laughs) your air quality index, because you could be sucking in ground level ozone, particle pollution, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide. I could go on. You could be dead by Tuesday. Uh, Where to check The air quality index can be found at airnow.gov or airnow app and what to do if the air quality is poor. You guessed it. Plan to stay indoors as much as possible with the windows closed. If you must be outdoors, can you take a guess what the New York Times wants you to put on your face? Yes, Mm. you guessed it. An N95 mask (laughs) to help reduce your exposure to toxins. Run. Don't walk to the nearest inside underground bunker. What do you make of it? Amazing. Uh, I've I seen people face in masks. Screen, but uh, I did not anticipate masks. I, I, no, I've <laughs> seen people walking around D.C. with masks. And some of it, it's probably people who have been doing it since COVID. But I really am seeing even more people that are wearing masks. So obviously, they're taking the New York Times way more seriously than they should. Actually, I'm begging people to go outside because as humans, our systems desperately need us to spend time outside. Obviously, not if your kid has asthma and your air quality index app is telling you that it's uh, not safe for your little kid to go outside. But we act as though bad weather or crazy weather or extreme weather isn't normal. Although extreme weather has been normal, it will always be normal. Averages are just that. They're averages. They're numbers we come up with when you know things are colder than usual and hotter than usual. That's how we get our averages. It's basic math. So extreme weather is something that is very normal for human beings. And yes, the level of chemicals all around us is difficult or is different than it has been in the past. But oh my goodness, you are just fine. In fact, you need to 
to be outside. You need to be getting sunlight. You need to be getting fresh air and exercise. So the more that the Taylor Lorenzo's, to your point, Megan, at the New York Times um, are, are huddling together, freaking out and finding new reasons uh, that they can get off of work or work from home, whatever it is, probably just a big excuse for them to have another excuse not to take the subway. Um, but all of this is just a nonsense. You're fine. In fact, you should be outside. It's so silly. There yeah, was another was like piece, you go outside. Uh, it's really hot. It feels unsafe. You then you go back in. You say, honey, you're not going to go to tennis practice today. It's too. That's it. You don't have the 27 indexes on your phone. Like I've got to check. I've got to do my calculations. Right. It's like this sort of fear culture, Eliana. It's it's everywhere. The best was there was another piece in the Times last week. Um, the headline was in Florida, swimmers brave an ocean that feels like steamy syrup. And they went brave. saying how awful this was and then talked to the people at the beach. And the comments from the people at the beach were one said, I like it warm. Another said, <laughs> this is as close as America gets to paradise. There's something quite special here. It's peaceful. And they go on and on. And no one at the beach knows what the Times reporters are talking about. Um, it is incredible. Sounds about right. Well, then you get um, in another example of this. Do you guys remember? Maybe our audience does, too, if they waste their time on Twitter like the three of us probably do. Um, there is this professor, Peter Hotez, who yes. a couple of weeks ago, he refused. He, he ripped on RFK Jr. to to high heaven about his covid claims. And then RFK Jr. said, why don't you come on and debate me? You know, we can do it on Joe Rogan. We can do it at any venue of your choice. Let's. And then Joe Rogan said to this professor, I'll give one hundred thousand dollars to the charity of your choice if you do it. And this guy refused. Right. Because it's totally different. If you're even Max Kendi, it's one thing to sit in front of an auditorium that's in the palm of your hand. It's another to have Coleman Hughes there presenting actual facts, you know, which is he's refused to debate Coleman, among others. And same thing for this Hotez, who's this covid lunatic um, who refused to debate RFK Jr. So he tweeted out this this weekend. This is not about the hysterical New York Times article, but it was about the Barbie Oppenheimer movies, which dominated the box office and, you know, record numbers, the fourth largest combined opening or like weekend at the box office ever. He tweets out the following. Not to be a Debbie Downer, but anyone worried about a post Barbie box office covid bump or post Oppie? <laughs> we'll probably never know since no one seems to be keeping track of such things anymore. Keep up with your boosters. And find a pink N95 or KN95 if you can. <laughs> These people were advising like on COVID and being listened to by the lunatics at C CNN and probably in the Dr. Fauci circles as well. Right. It's like it is a certain level of fear porn that many Americans are still living with. Emily. Yeah, it's totally fear porn. And actually, even on the climate issue, I've seen over the last month some horrible coverage. And actually, it happens every year where by some metric, uh, you'll have the media and people in the, the climate community proclaiming that this is the hottest summer on record. And you look right. at the record and regularly in the media coverage, they have this like the charts I've seen on Axios like a couple of times. They're measuring it either since 1979 
or since the late 19th century. So like 1870s, when we started like gauging global temperature, which is, first of all, it's a a sketchy metric to begin with. But second of all, in the last 150 years in an earth, a planet that is so vastly older than that is just insane. And again, it's, it's beyond it bleeds, it leads. It's because you actually have in these newsrooms, um, it's a really serious like psychological personality thing. You do have newsrooms full of Taylor Lorenz's, maybe not on the full, you know, you, you never go full Lorenz, maybe not fully on that scale, <laughs> but you do have people who were raised, uh, you know, the, they're my age. They were raised in like the victim culture, the helicopter parent culture. And so this is where they find their meaning and they can't let go of COVID. They can't let go of climate change, no matter what the facts say, because it's an emotional, like psychological attachment to that. Mm-hmm. This guy, Hotez Eliana, we've been following him for a while as he's one of those COVID misinformation purveyors, exactly what he accuses RFK Jr. of being. Um, Debbie Murphy actually pulled this uh, for one of our segments. We never ran it. But here's a little bit of this guy, Hotez, who wants us all to wear our pink N95 masks in the wake of the Barbie oppie COVID bump he's expecting. People listen to this lunatic. Here, take a listen to him. This is going to be a long lasting vaccine, a long lasting vaccine. A few moments later, we're seeing that two doses is not holding up well for emergency room visits. It's not holding up well for hospitalizations. Everyone's going to need a booster. You need that third immunization. Triple the amount. Get that third immunization. The two mRNA vaccines were always a three dose vaccine. The two mRNA vaccines were always a three dose vaccine. I've always said this is a three dose vaccine. I've always said this is a three dose vaccine. This is a three dose vaccine. But I'm not done yet. That third immunization. The problem is it's not holding up. Dr. Hotez, you are a national treasure. Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you for saving the world. Amazing. Matt Taibbi put that together. It's so I realize people are over COVID. You know, I'm chief among them, but it is like people like this still have some cachet online. They still have followers who believe in them. There actually probably will be people wearing pink Barbie masks now because they're worried about the post Barbie bump because this guy continues to get featured on the, the correct platforms that don't get censored because they're not engaged in the disinformation business like RFK Jr. or any of the COVID skeptics. I do think, you know, somebody like that may get attention in corners of the Internet. But by and large, people like you and me and Emily and and the American public um, are not paying these people mind, even if they appear on CNN. um, The country really has moved on from covid. And all in all, like I do think it would be healthy if um, if people debated. Um, I wish we had smarter debaters um, and people presenting themselves for public debates than Hotez and RFK Jr. But I do think it would be healthy if our public authorities or people who wished to um, be in those sorts of positions um, submitted and subjected themselves to scrutiny and debate. And I think the problem with a lot of what happened in COVID is that um, they didn't do that and simply um, operated as if Um, what they said should be the standards by which the American public lived their lives. And um, and and they refused to um, to answer questions or to account um, for for what they were saying. Okay, now on the subject of Barbie and Oppenheimer, I haven't seen either movie, but my God, there was a lot of coverage over uh, of these two movies. And what I understand about Barbie in particular is kind of interesting because 
they're saying that they've made her into sort of this modern day feminist hero, but maybe it's not quite as on the nose as you might expect. But the real main message of the movie is that men and women don't need each other. Um, there's some sort of problem with men and women being with each other and um, men are bad. Men are at the root of all evil. This is how Ben Shapiro saw it in any event. We have a bit of his objections where he actually burned a Barbie <laughs> queued up for those of you who have not yet seen it. For those of you who can't wait that long, I'm going to give my review of the Barbie movie in the most Oppenheimer fashion. What the f*** run? This movie is not just a piece of shit. This movie is a flaming piece of dog piled atop an entire dumpster on fire, piled atop a landfill filled with dog shit. It is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. The only thing that can be said for this film is production design. The basic sort of premise of the film, politically speaking, is that men and women are on two sides of the divide and they, and they hate each other. And literally the only way you can have a happy world is if the women ignore the men and the men ignore the women. What do you make of it, Emily? Because you you call, cover culture for the Federalist. I know you haven't seen it yet, but the early buzz about this movie is that they've tried to reinvent Barbie as some sort of feminist hero, as opposed to the the quintessential image of what a, a woman should be, but never will be with the teeny tiny waist and the enormous boobs and the forever legs and just basically a sex or beauty object. Yeah, the thing with Greta Gerwig movies, she did Lady Bird and Little Women, is that like I think they're really easy for people to um, place into the the woke box. I think especially men, um, but then I think also there's usually more nuance to it, and it might not be nuance that I necessarily agree with, but I think it is more thoughtful than just this woke non woke binary. So I am curious about Barbie. I do think the production design is not something that you can just sort of uh, like all respect to Ben. Yeah, he has great takes on films. I I think that is like, even as somebody who hasn't seen the movie, I think that's probably one of its, it might have some of the best production design that we've ever seen in Hollywood. Just from the the previews alone, you can see how much effort went into the aesthetic of the film. Um, that looks remarkable. And, you know, I, I know that it's sort of explicitly challenging the question of patriarchy and you have Barbie kind of discovering patriarchy and Ken discovering patriarchy. And that feels automatically like it's going to a bad place. But well, they're touting um, it. I mean, the critics are touting it as a stunning takedown of toxic masculinity. That's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. <laughs> I will say that. Although I, it, it is, if we can at least acknowledge, and this is something interesting um, that I've just seen from interviews with Gerwig, et cetera. Like if we can acknowledge that there is a difference between men and women and that a woman-led uh, government is different than a male-led government, that is a great starting place. Like if we can just at least concede sex differences, this movie right. is a masterpiece. <laughs> right, right. Maybe it advanced that ball. Um, to me, it's like, I'm, I'm looking for to see i'll see it just for the sake of my audience too because and i like margot robbie uh, i think she's a great actress but um it, it's it would dovetail perfectly eliana with what we're seeing out of places like disney the snow white movie that they're coming out with now looks absolutely ridiculous they've gotten rid of six of the seven dwarves and replaced them with some cast of diverse tall people <laughs> i guess they really wanted to help the short people the little people community by eliminating their roles. This woman shown here is not the actual woman playing Snow White, but the woman playing Snow White is named Rachel Zegler. 
Um, and she and Gal Gadot, who plays the evil queen, were caught on the red carpet. Uh, this is actually from September of 2022, but it's resurfaced now because the movie's coming out, talking about uh, what we should expect from Snow White. You said you were bringing a modern edge to it on stage. What do you mean by that? I just mean that it's no longer 1937. And we absolutely wrote a Snow White. That she's is not going to be yeah. saved by the prince. She's not going to be saved by the prince. And she's not going to be dreaming about true love. She's dreaming about becoming the leader she knows she can be. Oh, my God. <laughs> Nobody Who wants, wants a movie about true love? What kind of woman do we want out there seeking true love, Eliana? The outrage. Yeah, I mean, these are supposed to be timeless. Um, we don't we don't evolve beyond them. Um, they're supposed to be timeless. But I will say, I mean, if Barbie's not trans in the in the movie, like that's something <laughs> in the in the Greta Gerwig column, right? Low bar. The bar is so low. Yeah, it's so um, low. I, I'm not seeing the Barbie movie. Um, I that's all. I don't have much on the Barbie movie. Oppenheimer. I'm very excited about. Yeah, I actually am looking forward to that, too. And I think that that lead actor, we watched him in Peaky Blinders to the extent I could handle Peaky Blinders is so violent. Eventually, I was like, I can't take any more of this. But he's amazing. Um, but I'm sick of them. Like what? You, you see how young these women are, you know, like the, this woman, Rachel Zegler. She looks about 12 years old in that clip who plays the new Snow White. And um, it really does seem to me that this is like a 19 year olds version of feminism, right? You've got to reject men. They have to be painted as toxically masculine. You have to spit on true love like that is not a value that is universal that everyone aspires to well before they aspire to leadership, right? That it's somehow they're mutually exclusive, by the way. You've got to get rid of the, I guess, the love storyline and focus more on how she wants to be what CEO of uh, IBM. I mean, like what's what's Snow White's plan? I, I she's Snow White. She's like a princess. OK, whatever. What are the dwarfs now? Are they like little helpers who are going to help her get like her Harvard education, her Ph.D. at Harvard while she works out her Mensa IQ? I don't know. Um, her e her takes, executive assistants. Right. All of them. But that yeah. takes me to that takes me to the U.S. women's soccer team who are suffering from all these same problems. I really do believe their version of what a feminist is, what it means to be an empowered woman, at least as an American woman, means to hate your country. It means to go out on the national stage and embarrass yourself and your country by not singing the national anthem. And for several of them, not even holding their hands over their hearts when the national anthem played. That was a bridge too far. They couldn't be bothered to actually place their hand on their heart when the national anthem played as they stood out there representing you and me and the country and our military and people who have given their lives for the country that they represent. It was too much of an effort, you see, to place their hand over their heart or, God forbid, sing. Here's a clip of the disgrace that preceded the opening of the World Cup. I like this gal at the end, the blonde gal. I think that might be the gal from Arizona. Um, if you look at the roster, I mean, most of them are from California. Some are from New Jersey. Some are from Massachusetts. But it, like all these liberal bastions. And there they are out there. And by the way, Megan Rapino too. She's on the team. She announced her retirement. 
she, she's not starting. She didn't make the cut to start. Sorry, sit on the sidelines. Um, she said she'll never stand again for the national anthem. So this is clearly, I think, as a result of her influence. And it's disgusting. Emily, what do you think? Well, I didn't even realize that there was a Women's World Cup happening. So first of all, thank you for <laughs> for breaking that news to me. But no, it's it, it's the clearly it's it's the culture of the team, um, and it has come from Rapino. Uh, and and it's not just the culture of the team; it's a culture of the team that's reflecting uh, the culture of younger Americans. And it's really it it is disrespectful to people who put their lives on the line for the country. And it it gets I I mean I think why are you even playing on the team? Like it gets to this incoherence they want to they want the money they want the uh the mm-hmm. power or the acclaim that comes with being a part of the team um but they actually don't want to represent the country like to me that doesn't make any sense whatsoever don't go on the team if you're ashamed and embarrassed of the country um yes. even if you dislike the country i mean if you look at for instance what frederick Douglass, his, his famous speech what he had to say about the fourth of july even if even if you are upset with the country even if you think the country is not living up to its potential you can still be patriotic, but we have this absurd binary that is overly simplistic that says you either absolutely hate America or you love America and there's nothing in between. You can't hope for it to be a better country and still be patriotic. It just has to be, um, I'm not patriotic at all. So I'm not, I'm just going to do this performative nonsense, not actually even put my money where my mouth is, but because my self-esteem is tied up in empty gestures, I'm going to have to do this empty gesture. It is, it is incredible incredibly embarrassing. Um, and it, it's just so stupid. They just are ungrateful. So, Eliana, only five of the 11 players on the field stood uh, for the anthem with their hands over their hearts. The other six did not. Only three of our players, Julie Ertz, Alyssa Nair and Lindsay Horan, sang uh, along with the hundreds of American supporters who are watching the stand. So good for those three, because that's an act of defiance now to actually sing the national anthem when your loser teammates refuse to to whom all opportunities have been given. What an incredible opportunity to stand out there representing the United States of America in World Cup soccer. And you can't be you can't be shamed into at least feigning a touch of patriotism. Meanwhile, we are playing against Vietnam, who we beat 3-0. And look at the Vietnamese. Look at them and how they sang their national anthem. Every single one of them has their hand over their heart. Every single one of them is singing. Every single one. But, you know, we're disgusting, I guess, when it comes to human rights. This is what people like Rapino have said in the past. So we can't be saluted in any way. Vietnam, a communist country, by the way, um, right. still a communist country after the war. But um, what this brought to mind was Brittany Griner, the WNBA player who was detained um, unjustly in Russia a couple of years ago. She protested um, the playing of the national anthem at WNBA games before she was detained in Russia and didn't stand. And when she came back, she did stand. <laughs> and she told the press, and I had pulled up this article because I wanted to get her quote uh, right. She said, hearing the national anthem, it definitely hit different. It's like when you go for the Olympics, you're sitting there about to get the gold put on your neck, the flags are going up and the anthem is playing. It just hits different. Being here today, it means a lot. And it made me wonder a couple of things. One, um, 
is it really the case that our professional athletes now have to go be detained in a foreign jail to come to appreciate the liberties that they have in this country? And two, that it's a really sad reflection of the kind of education that um, that our young people are getting today, that they actually do have to experience um, despotism in order to have um, a basic appreciation of how wonderful our country is. Mm-hmm. The this woman, Megan Rapino, is a problem. I mean, just last week she was out there saying, what's the matter with trans athletes playing against women? Where, where, where are all these trans athletes who are taking away women's rights? Obviously, she's a dumbass who pays no attention to the news. Uh, it, it would take about two minutes of a Google search, two seconds for you to come up with a long list, which I read to her in part uh, when she made that inane statement. But she said it back before the 2019 World Cup, she would probably she said, I would, quote, never put my hand over my heart again, would never put my hand over my heart. And I'll probably never sing the national anthem again. You should be disqualified. You shouldn't be allowed to play on the team. I'd rather have a lesser player out there who loves America. And this woman, rather than being shamed right after the team, Emily, goes out there and they she is being lauded like she is some sort of literal superhero. Look at this ad Nike had running during the World Cup, which we watched because my daughter loves soccer. And I bit my tongue because I'm trying not to ruin it for her with the politics of these loser players. But look at this Nike ad about Megan Rapino. That's enough. They get they get the picture. She's a superhero. Freaking hates America, but she's our superhero. That's really embarrassing. I don't know anybody outside of like the boardroom that was in charge of that ad that would find that. Now, like even children. I, when I was a young soccer player, we had Mia Hamm. I mean, how much better is that than Megan yes. Rapino? And it does make a difference, by the way. It makes a total difference uh, as a young woman, how you see the world. It does. It's very influential when your brain is forming in these formative time periods. It really does change the way you see the world. So if we think the generation of young reporters, for instance, that's right now lauding Megan Rapino is bad. Wait until the people that come after them um, that that grew up at a time with the Megan Rapinos being told by every cultural institution that this is somebody to to lionize and to treat as a superhero. Um, when she like historically, there's just absolutely no perspective on how wonderful this country is like she should leave the team and move to Cuba, move to Russia, move somewhere else if she thinks that America is so bad that she, somebody who has been afforded all of these opportunities, um, is is living in a country that is just so miserable. By the way, she's also getting lauded and getting ad money from major American corporations, lauded yes. by a free press, which they don't have in other countries even today. They don't have the free press that we have. People have different standards for what qualifies. As, as patriotism, as uh, free speech, and all of that we still have in this country, she is getting that because of the freedoms that she has afforded. She has no understanding of the world. She has no understanding of history, and she has no basic gratitude for the country that's given her everything. Right. She hates America. I will boo her from my couch if she ever gets off the bench and actually gets out there. She used to be a great soccer player. I don't know how she's doing now. 
Um, but those girls need to represent this country if they agree to represent this country. That means standing tall and at a minimum putting your hand over your heart. If you could find it within yourself to actually muster a few words of the national anthem, if you learned it ever in your young, dumbass lives, that'd be great. And don't tell me they didn't have time because they're athletes, because athletes have time to memorize the one song that we sing to honor, yes, the America, the idea, but also it's fallen heroes and the sacrifices that have been made and the principles that we stand for. Do we uphold them perfectly at all times? Have we always in our history? Absolutely not. But we strive to more than any other country on earth. And if you would spend two minutes doing some homework, you would know that. But you're too busy lauding yourself in the Nike ads and cashing your million dollar checks to actually give a shit about what this country you're out there representing stands for. Rant over. Stand by. <laughs> Coming back. We're going to talk about What's happening now with BLM getting paid out and the really unfair attacks on Ron DeSantis and his Florida Board of Education. Don't go away. The Megyn Kelly Show is supported by Grand Canyon University. Founded in 1949, GCU is a private Christian university that's dedicated to delivering an affordable and transformative higher education. Their vibrant campus is located in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona. And according to Niche.com, ranked a top 25 best campus in the USA. As of June 2023, GCU offers 330 academic programs with over 270 of them online, allowing you the freedom to earn your degree on your time from wherever you are. At GCU, your degree, whether it's a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate, integrates the free market system and a welcoming Christian worldview. Learn more about GCU's programs, competitive tuition rates, and scholarship offers from your university counselor. They're part of the supportive graduation team that takes a personalized approach to helping you achieve your academic goals walking alongside you every step of the way. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. For more info or to enroll, visit gcu.edu. So Ron DeSantis and his Florida Board of Education under fire today, which is kind of nothing new. They're always attacking Ron DeSantis for his effort to stop wokeism from infecting curriculum down in schools in Florida. Um, The latest is he is being accused of basically saying slavery was a great thing, (laughs) highly beneficial. That's not at all what they've said in the Florida education um, guidelines that needs to be taught in school. This is how the mainstream media reports it, that that the teachers must instruct that, quote, slaves developed skills, which in some instances could be used for personal benefit, develop skills, which in some instances could be used for personal benefit. Um, Now, Kamala Harris comes out and makes an emergency trip to Florida. It was just like, it was just like she did when the Tennessee three threw their antics, you know, in Nashville, when they took the bullhorn out there and she went out there to talk about, you know, this is the thing that really animates her racial disputes. She comes out and she says that anyone could could suggest that in the midst of these atrocities, that there was any benefit to being subjected to this level of dehumanization. And she goes on from there. All right. She's outraged. The left is outraged. The views out. Everybody's outraged at Ron DeSantis and how the Florida Board of Education could do this. Well, cue Dr. William Allen, who was on the African-American History Standards work group that put together the lesson plans, a group of African-Americans working on the history standards for Florida students 
and how slavery ought to be taught. And if you look at the full thing and Charles C.W. Cook of National Review treated out a whole thread on this. I mean, it's got all the horrors of slavery. There is no whitewashing any of the horrors of slavery at all. Never mind Jim Crow and all of it that came later. But now he's given an interview in response to what Kamala Harris and others are saying about this curriculum that they developed in the open with everybody could, could see it and participate while it was being developed and listen to him. There's been a little bit of backlash um, to to these standards that, you know, were put out. And, you know, like you said, that, you know, these were these were done in open uh, open sessions so the public could, you know, listen or watch along. Um, you know, what would what would you say to critics uh, who say these standards um, have set education back? Well, I can't answer critics whom I haven't seen or heard. The only criticism I've encountered so far is a single one that was articulated by the vice president, and which was an error. As I stated in my response to the vice president, it was categorically false. It was never said that slavery was beneficial to Africans. What was said, and anyone who reads this will see this with clarity, it is the case that Africans proved resourceful, resilient, and adaptive, and were able to develop skills and aptitudes which served to their benefit, both while enslaved and after enslavement. It's unbelievable when you, you hear the full context, what they're trying to say, they're trying to pay a compliment to the spirit of these slaves who went through such brutality but never lost their resilience, many of them, but still found a way to persevere as humans and then post-slavery to, to make something out of the experience. They're not in any way trying to say it was a bed of roses. But if you were to listen to Kamala Harris, Emily, you would think that. Yeah, and the media elevates some black voices over other black voices, and they've done this for years. You have white liberals in the media who, when a black voice comports with their narrative, uh, that's the one that you know must be correct and platformed. But when a, a black voice you know disagrees with them or is aligned with Ron DeSantis, I mean, this Thomas Sowell, Clarence Thomas, these people have been going through this for for decades. I don't know how the hell they put up with it, but that's um, the same thing. If you if you happen to be aligned with Ron DeSantis, then uh, context be damned we will take you and we will you know fit it into whatever we say any corrections that come out of this by the way will not be seen most people will just see the story and it will further advance this idea that the media has been selling that ron DeSantis is just bringing white supremacy back to florida which is just so stupid and absurd but it's again another testament the only reason that Kamala Harris gets away with this is because we don't have a media that holds her to standards of seriousness that she deserves to be held to. Instead, they act like partisans as well. Um, and they go and they use oppo research as though it's not oppo research, as though it's just all the truth. And then it, they let a vice president get away with just talking out of her ass um, and yeah. it, for political reasons. Here she is, Eliana, trying to stoke the racial fuel around this issue because it benefits her politically. And like I said, this is the one thing that actually gets her animated, whether it's trying to raise money for Jacob Blake or call him a hero or raise money for BLM protesters or flying down to the Tennessee three who hijacked that proceeding, legislative proceeding, or this where she made an unscheduled trip to Florida so she could rail on Ron DeSantis. Here she is. And while they do this, check it out. They push forward revisionist history. 
Just yesterday in the state of Florida, they decided middle school students will be taught that enslaved people benefited from slavery. They insult us in an attempt to gaslight us and we will not stand for it. She's such a liar. She's such a liar. Again, the actual sentence is slaves developed skills, which in some instances could be used for personal benefit. And the preceding line, as uh, Dr. Allen points out, talks about how the African-American community was resourceful, resilient and adaptive under the most horrific circumstances. What do you make of it? I actually encourage your viewers and listeners to go look at the primary source document here, which is Florida State Academic Standards in Social Studies for 2023. And if you want a shortcut, just control F for the word slavery and see if you think that what the way Kamala Harris described what Florida is teaching young people is accurate, that this is a whitewashing of slavery. Um, I think my interpretation of her comments is that they know that they are on the defensive about what kids are learning in schools. And this is their attempt to push back on it. It is to grossly distort what is actually being taught because they're losing. Um, in the Florida standards, it includes instruction as to how slavery was used in cultures around the world, um, the differences and similarities between serfdom and slavery, uh, judicial and legislative actions concerning slavery. Uh, there are 95 references to slavery in this document, and they have seized on the one um, that they believe can make Ron DeSantis look bad. And frankly, he should be pushing back more strongly against it than he is. Um, but my view of this is just um, that these are the comments of a desperate politician. Hmm. Well, maybe I'll ask him about it when um, I sit with him it, yes, uh, later this they're week. On the, they're on the back foot here um, because Republicans all over the country, uh, including Glenn Youngkin in Virginia and Ron DeSantis in Florida, um, have ridden to victory on precisely this issue. Um, the media may not be covering it. They may be covering it falsely. But parents know that what their kids are learning in school um, is crap. And they know that what is in this primary document is better than what was there before. Mm -hmm. He's trying. This is all as a result of his Stop Woke Act, Emily, which has been uh, struck down in the college level. But up, it's fine for the K through 12 level because we do have more control as parents and administrators and state lawmakers over what happens in the K through 12 agenda because they're children, uh, they're minors. And um, in that agenda, he has tried to remove what we've short formed as critical race theory from these kids by law, saying you may not teach one race that it is inferior to another race or that it is born with an original sin, thanks to things that happened hundreds of years ago. You may not do that, but you will teach the full horrors of slavery and its context. And you find you know, a diverse group of scholars to sit together and come up with a thoughtful lesson plan that has one line talking about, again, I view this as trying to pay homage to those slaves who went through hell and yet managed to emerge out the other side. And, you know, some cases, depending on when they lived um, with with some basic skills that they actually managed to apply right to their work life. Um, but they take that out. There's a reason that they're not quoting the that, that they were resourceful and resilient and adaptive before the line that Kamala Harris and she switched it to. They benefited like it was great. Everyone loved slavery. That's what Ron DeSantis wants to teach.
Uh, and to me, it's just it's a continuation, like the covid lies that we talked about earlier, the the cover up for Hunter Biden. Now this they've got to attack. Everything is fucking political for them. Everything is political. There's nothing based in truth. Exactly. That's the thing. Like is politicians for years have been uncharitable and disingenuous and they've stretched truths and outright lied. The difference is that the media has taken Kamala Harris's lie and Ron DeSantis's opponent's lie and cast it, framed it as the truth instead of being skeptical and in fact critical of a politician that is stretching the truth. They've actually just accepted and swallowed that narrative whole cloth. And this is where, again, the media, I come back to it over and over again, I really think is the same single biggest problem in American politics, because how are you supposed to, as a voter, know what the hell is happening if they are telling you this over and over and over again, shamelessly? And it's such a despicable smear. The same thing with COVID. You're smearing people as grandma killers and racists. It's not smearing somebody as having a different position on the tax code, you know, thinking the corporate tax rate should be a little bit lower. It's not that kind of smear. You're smearing people as as grandma killers and racists. It's just beyond the pale. You're absolutely right, too. And, and Eliana Johnson, you are so right about Ron DeSantis should be out there touting the fact that he's at odds with Kamala Harris. You can't pick a better person to be at odds with as a Republican politician. She's dumb. She's wrong. She's dishonest and she's picked the wrong fight. So he should. I mean, if he wants to win, he's going to have to take off the gloves on all of this stuff. Quick line on uh, Black Lives Matter. Unbelievably, New York City has just agreed to pay a nearly 14 million, 13.7 million dollar settlement to the BLM protesters, protesters. Right. They're they're protesters. They're not insurrectionists. They're not rioters. They're protesters. Um, because they claim that their rights were violated in the George Floyd protests. Again, protests, quote unquote, um, that they're getting something like 10 grand a person for up to almost 1400 people. Uh, They claim that they were subjected to pepper spray used indiscriminately, batons in some cases, and that they used crowd control tactics like kettling, which involves encircling protesters so they're unable to leave a contained area. Some of these protests (laughs) devolved in New York into looting and rioting, according to the city lawyers. They set police cars ablaze. They vandalized precinct houses. They threw rocks, bricks, bottles at cops. They stabbed, punched and bit officers. They hurled Molotov cocktails at them. But the police officers will be getting no such payments from the poor little protesters. I just want to speak to that quickly because I covered the protests here in D.C. And what I saw night after night was uh, especially coming from some white protesters who were shouting in the faces of, in other cases, black female protesters, calling them the most unbelievable names um, and threatening them. The protesters were constantly in the face of the police officers who stood there stoically. And I'm not somebody who reflexively takes the police side in every different conversation because I think they can abuse government power. Uh, But at the same time, what those protests put on display was how, why we don't have good police forces in so many of these cities, because absolutely nobody, nobody wants to work for the departments in places here like Washington, D.C., where they can't recruit any police officers anymore because they were being treated this way. And now New York City is giving settlements to the people who were conducting themselves this way, putting themselves in these situations, creating these cauldrons of tension. Um, So it is just it is completely sad and it's not going to make anybody any safer. 
How do you think it would go, Eliana, if somebody who was there on January 6th but didn't participate in the actual riot said, I'm going to sue these Capitol Police for kettling, <laughs> making me feel enclosed in a circle that I didn't want to stay in? You think they'd get 10 grand ahead? Oh, wait, no, all those people are looking at 25 years in jail right now where they've been kept in solitary since Jan 6th and President Trump may be the next. (laughs) I realize they're not exactly the same thing, but they're close enough that it's a disturbing situation. More than anything, I think it sends the (laughs) it incentivizes the wrong kind of behavior. We really don't want to be incentivizing the kind of um looting and civil unrest that we saw um, in those protests. And um, this sort of action does, I think, send the wrong message. We don't want to incentivize the kind of behavior that we saw either um, on January 6th or in the Black Lives Matter protests. So um, the the payouts are unfortunate in this case. All right. Let's end on a hopeful note. Yesterday was my son's 10th birthday. Happy birthday, Thatcher. And uh, whenever we have a birthday, we do Rosebud Thorn, where you look back at the past year, you say what your rose was, what your thorn was, and then you offer your bud for the upcoming year, like what you hope for. So let's end on a bud. My bud for today is the termination of DEI head Tyrion Steinbeck, who is at Stanford and has now, quote, resigned. But they basically booted her out. Um, because she's the one who accosted the Fifth Circuit judge who was invited to speak by the Federalist Society. And she got up there and hijacked the whole event after her unruly students tried to shout this poor guy down who had been invited there to offer his perspective. This is the adult in the room who was supposed to bring order. And instead, she decided to make herself a DEI star. She's now out at Stanford Law, which I love. But here's just a little refresher on what Tyrion Steinbeck was saying uh, when Judge Duncan appeared out there, South Five. I'm uncomfortable because this event is tearing at the fabric of this community that I care about and I'm here to support. And I don't know, and I have to ask myself, and I'm not a cynic to ask this, is the juice worth the squeeze? Your advocacy, your opinions from the bench land as absolute disenfranchisement of their rights and does land. Let me that for many people here, your work has caused harm. And I understand why people feel like the harm is so great that we might need to reconsider those policies. And luckily, they're in a school where they can learn the advocacy skills to advocate for those changes. Ha ha. She got basically booted out. And I love it because if that can happen at a school like Stanford, where the administration wound up saying, you were wrong, madam, you guys had no business doing this to an invited guest here on Stanford Law School, then it can happen anywhere. This is a shoot of grass. It is a bud. And it makes me very happy. Emily, thoughts? Yeah, no. And I think another one is what we were talking about with Barbie Oppenheimer. And then you can connect it to the national anthem, the women's soccer team, and that we used to have monoculture. There used to be some basic points of consensus in our society, basic building blocks. And when you have these like crazy monster box office numbers uh, for both movies, you know, hundred and even like Sound of Freedom is still in there. Mission Impossible is still Mm -hmm, in there. Um, That means we're all like actually still having some touchstones. And so hopefully we can get to a place of of, uh, having some basic monoculture, being able to agree on the national anthem and you know making it shameful for people who don't agree on that but also just sharing some things in our culture um, that can bring us together i love that she actually stood up there purporting to be defending free speech but then asked for a revisitation of the free speech policy because really the free speech was very annoying 
that this judge could be sitting there. I mean, it's not easy to get a Fifth Circuit judge to come to your law school and speak. But Judge Duncan did it. And this was the treatment he got. And it's amazing. It is a true victory, Eliana, for sanity that this woman is no longer with Stanford. It's a victory against the nonsense DEI policies, against people who use this ruthlessness to enforce them and trample on free speech in the in the process. And truly, Stanford is no conservative institution. So I do see hope. Well, we were talking about incentives, and I think this sends a real um, message to um DEI and students at other schools that um, the incentive structure hopefully has changed and that DEI will not be um, hopefully will not be synonymous with intolerance and shouting down of um, conservative views, which in many cases we've seen at Stanford and at Yale at other places, it really has been. So hopefully, you know, Stanford, three cheers to them for sending the message that um, this is not okay. Yeah. This is not okay. And as it turns out, the juice was definitely worth the squeeze because <laughs> she got booted and he is still on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and I'm sure willing to speak at Stanford now <laughs> at any point. Um, so good for all involved. Emily, Eliana, so great to see you. Thank you. Love having Thanks, the Megan. EJs on. Uh, I wanted to tell you that tomorrow we have a first time guest on the program, Ali London. He is an amazing follow on Twitter. If you haven't already, Ali London and his life story is incredible. He has been on the front lines of all this gender madness. And he doesn't care who comes for him. You're not going to want to miss this. We will see you then. Oh, by the way, by the way, if you have a question that you would like me to ask Governor Ron DeSantis when I sit down with him later this week, email me Megan at MeganKelly.com. OK, go there now. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.